Michael Jackson, Kevin Spacey, Roseanne Barr, Bill Cosby, Lori Laughlin, Louis C.K., Lance Armstrong, Asia Argento, Michael Richards. That's Kramer. Why'd you take Kramer from me, Michael Richards? And the knuckleheads behind Firefest, man. That guy, the guy in charge of that, he and Hitler might be the only people residing in uh, Robert Capon's hell. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and maybe the CFO, I know. But besides that, what do all these people have in common? They're all denizens of secular hell. They're the culturally damned. And the terror of their 21st century Gehenna is that it's got this kind of spiritual claustrophobia because there's no way out. There's no hope of a way out. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's just damnation. And it's all around us, and we don't need hellfire and brimstone preachers to tell us about it. We are perpetually worried that we might get dragged down with somebody else around us into an unending, inescapable cultural hell. And who's in it? The unforgivables. These people who have to despair that in fact there is no offer of hope. There is really nothing that can be done. And in fact, I think the strangest thing I find, and I, I think this is really a bummer, is that often sometimes people want to make a, make a change or turn things around, and they're hated just as much. Uh, my friend uh, Dan and I interviewed uh, for our old podcast uh, Josh Harris, who wrote a book on purity culture, and then he re rejected it and he's doing grad work and so forth. But the number of people who, who just got angry that we gave him a platform to talk about how he had a change of mind was, I think, one of the more interesting things over the years. People, again, culturally, there's not Christians telling me that he's going to hell, hell, but culturally and even within the church, here's a person who's trying to think through things and they don't wanna let him do it. And one of the reasons, of course, is uh, that secular hell is inescapable according to its own logic. According to the logic of, of secularity, you can't acknowledge your sin. You can't really uh, repent in that true way. Because if you acknowledge it, it's, it's in us, or it's, if it's in you, then you entirely must go. If you could say that you made a mistake, this is kind of like John Wesley, the perfected Christian for John Wesley, you know, makes mistakes, but doesn't intentionally sin. Well, in, in the culture, in secularity, the logic is that you could, you could accidentally say something that sounded racist, but if we ever admitted to ourselves that there was a part of our hearts that was racist, then we're irredeemable. I think about many stories like this, but uh, Ralph Northam, the, the governor, who had a picture of himself in blackface, his response initially, I think, was indicative of, of what we have to do in the secular jury. You have to deny it. You couldn't possibly say, I used to have these thoughts. I used to be that person. But, but I, re I renounce it. You can't really do that. You have to find a way to say that that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Whether it was literally not me or that wasn't me, I was drunk or I was on Ambien or whatever. Well, one, uh, you know, you got Roseanne Barr uh, blaming it on Ambien. But I wanna show you, you know, this, this cultural reality as, as often is uh, perceived by the guys from uh, South Park. Here is 
the, the, the final episode with Mr. Hanky. Mr. Hanky is the Christmas poo, and he loves you, but the problem is he's stinky. And uh, on, this, on this episode, he is in, he's in charge of doing the Christmas pageant, but the, the, the town wants to fire him from doing the Christmas pageant because every, every night he, he takes Ambien and he starts tweeting very deeply offensive things. So here's, here's, what we, here's what we see happens to him. Today, South Park says goodbye to Mr. Hanky. The longtime union of this town and the holiday figure is over for good. We should all feel pretty great about ourselves, give ourselves a little nice pat on the back, as we as a society continue to try and sweep away all the poop. You just need to go. We've already called you a pooper. A pooper? They have that? Oh, you mean lift. Okay, goodbye, everyone. I hope I brought a few smiles and a few laughs into your hearts. Goodbye, Mr. Hanky. He'll have to find a place that accepts racist, awful beings like him. There are still places out there who don't care about bigotry and hate. Cool, man. Talking crap. Welcome, my friend. Please, rest your weary feet and make yourself at home here. <laughs> so, so what do you have to do? Uh, you, with, the, with the Mr. Hankies, you've got to exile them. And, and this is part of our panic because, you know, um, it's not just that you're in secular hell if you're Louis C.K. You're, you're on the edge if you're Sarah Silverman and you're wrestling publicly even with this idea that you reject some of the weird things that Louis C.K. did, but you still want to express that he's your friend and that you love him. That's, that's hard. And it's especially hard for me. Now, I'm not whining about me, because I have a job or a set of jobs that are all kind of related, and I've been, I've been going through this kind of crisis trying to figure out what is it that I do? Am I a sage for the young Caleb's to come and then I will teach them to be true grasshoppers? Is this what I do? No. No, am I, am I an entertainer? No, I'm only an entertainer in the way that a, that a driver ed teacher, I, I don't know if you have this in California, but in California, if you take a traffic school, you can get a comedian to do the traffic school. But nobody goes to traffic school for the humor. It's just, it makes it go down a little bit easier. So, so maybe I'm a, an, an entertaining guy to give you the boring pill that you need. But that's not really what it is, I don't think. I think what I'm paid to do is try to be cool enough to try to trick the kids into coming back to church. I get all the freshmen... They all come in and like, here, let's put the, I get in, you don't, I get in trouble with, with my church body all the time. It's like constant, right? And just people in general and, and mom, Mormon moms and just everybody's always mad at me. 
but why do they keep letting me deal with the freshmen? Shouldn't you hide me off with just like five upper division students? No, the answer is, here we go. I'm gonna let the kids feel like this crazy guy is free and then he can be a part of this church thing and you can too, so come on in. Or my friend Dan and I are going up to uh, Canada and we're gonna talk to all these pastors, these Canadian pastors, and what is our task? We're supposed to tell them how to get the kids back into church or what clever thing can I say to convince you that it's still cool, you can come do it. And I'm getting a little bit nervous about this thing we're doing in Canada because as I've been reflecting on it, I have a, a, a real big difficulty and that is I think it's almost impossible given the current situation. There'll be places here and there where people connect with church and find meaning and that's great. But more and more as I teach these freshmen, they're not angry atheists that have these intellectual objections to Christianity. They smell something. They smell something stinky. It smells like Mr. Hankey and they don't want to go to hell. And most of the parents who pay me to come and yak with the kids or whatever, they think that what's going on is that there's a bunch of naughty kids that don't want to come to church because they don't want to clean up their act. Or there's a bunch of naughty kids who just need to know that the, that the church will embrace them, the church being the good guys and they being the bad guys. But what's really going on is for most of these young people, church is the bad guys. Church, or the, the American Christian church, is itself in secular hell. It's a fact that the church is in secular hell. It's debatable about whether it should be. But one thing's for sure, it's increasingly impossible to just say, well, it's religious, so we'll give them a pass. This week we didn't give the Boy Scouts a pass. We don't give corporations a pass. So why should we give these corporations uh, known as church bodies a pass? It's in sec they're in secular hell. And this is very poignant to me because as I'm, as I'm dealing with this, it affects my own family and my own kids' friends. There was one of their friends who was over and I, I do this all the time. I start lecturing like I'm in a class and they think it's funny for 15 minutes and they bail. And, uh, but there's this one young lady, she's an atheist, and, and I said, well, I'm gonna tell you, you know, what I think the message of Jesus is and I just wanna see, can I convince you to just come try coming to church one time? And she laughed at me. But she didn't laugh at me like, um, like it was a derisive laugh. She laughed at me because she knew I was 100% wasting my breath. There was no way, because for her to join the church is, like, like my youngest son ex expressed, a very dangerous thing, but not because they don't necessarily like whatever Jesus had to say. My son goes to a school where most of the kids are from places that are maybe non-Christian countries, they don't have, uh, not a lot of Christians, and he says that for him to identify with the church as he's walking around, if he wore a, a sign that says, I am part of the Christian church, would be to carry with it a whole bunch of other stuff that he doesn't want to communicate. I don't want you in this country. I don't think you have human rights. Um, I don't think that women are people too. You know, like on and on. Sexism, greed, support of tyranny and power, disregard for the poor. These are all things that you might say, that's not my church. And if you, if you find these places, if you say that's not indicative of my experience, then you nurture that, you fund that, you don't let that go but the church is in secular hell as a thing, as a brand. 
and it, and it has a smell. Now, smells are interesting things in the West. Not, not every country, as I've been traveling around, has the same visceral response to just smells. But I was reminded of this. I was coming over here. We were walking over, and there was this salty dude, and he had a phone, and he was angry. I could hear only one side of the conversation. He said, I can't believe, I don't like that guy. No, I, I don't care. I don't like that guy. Well, because he said, because he said I smell. Oh, he said I smell like weed. Well, that's true. All right, I guess he's okay then. <laughs> Somebody said he smelled. And so just even smelling is, is that's, we don't want to smell, right? But smells are interesting because there's two kinds of smells that we don't like as we're driving around in cars. You may have noticed there's the fart, <laughs> silent fart, and then there's the poo-poo shoe. And they're very different. You'd think they'd be the same. They're both kind of poopy. But the, but the fart... I kid you not, I was there with a bunch of uh, admi college administrators. We're all wearing suits. I used to do this sort of silly thing. And we were all driving along with the college president. And then all of a sudden, somebody, you know, let the silent one that was deadly out. And I, I thought it was interesting because no one said anything. We were all too dignified. What we do is we start talking about something else because we're uncomfortable. To pretend like it's not there and we want to relieve the tension. But this is not what happens, friends, with the poo-poo shoe. No, with the poo-poo shoe, everything is off the table. You're not talking about what's on the radio. You're not going to talk about where to get breakfast. Everything is on hold until we figure out who's got the poo-poo shoe. Now, that's what's going on when I'm dealing with young people. You think I'm going to go come and talk to the kids about apologetics or the riches of the tradition of Jesus and all this and, and maybe some great ways of worshiping or something. And no, all of that's off the table so long as the smell of Mr. Hankey is, uh, is there. Now, what do we do about this? Now, the, the problem is, you know, we, we let some of this stuff fester because the church sometimes has, has failed in that it has not been transparent. It has not admitted or fessed up to its problems. And the reason is secular, I think, that we have bought into this secular lie that we cannot acknowledge that we did something stinky because if we acknowledge it, that we can't be redeemed. But I contend that transparency in churches is a sign that we're taking the gospel seriously. And lack of it is a sign that we might not really trust unconditional love is for us. So the way forward involves understanding the difference, I think, between judgment and discernment. Discernment looks at the truth, but with deep compassion. Judgment eyes the truth and views it with contempt. They look a lot alike, but they're very, very different. Discernment is not bean counting or self-loathing. It is an honest and merciful recognition of reality. And the reality is, if we really get down to it, the reason the unforgivables make us nervous is that we realize that someday they're gonna find out that we really are also the unforgivables. It may be along the lines of a, you know, a steroid, use in baseball, but still, we feel like we might be cast out. And part of this is because there is a big problem I'm noticing with my young people. There's some of them didn't go to church, and there's another group that did go to church. They're Protestants, and what I'm worried about is they have a great deal of negative self-talk, what David, you know, calls the, the inner accountant. But I think it's even, in a way, worse than the inner accountant for some of these kids. They feel a deep sense of disgust for who they are their very being, and it's not just like 
LGBTQ kids that grew up in the church. It's just every one of them. Because they misheard and sometimes we were misspeaking Protestant theology. So let me get a little bit more technical for you. In the 16th century, there was a dude named Matthias Flacius Illyricus. And Flacius was a Gnasio Lutheran. This is the real deal. This is the hardcore Lutheran. This is a Lutheran who gets a tattoo of the Luther Rose. You know, that's how serious. And then gets mad at himself because tattoos are against the Bible or something, but just very intense. And what he said was something that was controversial. Flacius said, we humans are evil by nature. Now I want you to think for a second, does that ring true to your catechesis, to what you learned, that, that we are evil by nature? Because it sounds like a really good Lutheran thing. It sounds like low anthropology, we'll take that. And the good news is that the, the Lutheran theologians all got together and they wrote down their response to this in the thing called the formula of Concord, which is part of our confessions. I like the 39, you, you Anglicans, you get the 39 articles. That's really cute. You can put that on a napkin. We've got a book that's fatter than the Bible to explain the Bible. I affirm it, but you use your own judgment. That's a little weird, don't you think? But, but you, so you got this thing that Flacius, he was, he was said that, that he was in error. Because no, we're not these little worm-like disgusting trolls of being. We are beautiful, noble creations of God. We are sons and daughters of heaven. And the tragedy is precisely that we are that and that yet we have been twisted and warped beyond that original recognition. Now, there's a great way to illustrate this, I think, and that is in uh, Tolkien's uh, understanding of what the orcs are. So if we think of ourselves as orcs, when we, when we said, you know, we have mercy upon us miserable offenders, this is what the orcs in the pews are saying. But there's a scene in the book that's not in the movies where Frodo and Sam, the hobbits, are looking out and they're spying on the, on the orcs. And Sam says, and he's surprised, Sam says, wow, I thought that the orcs would eat tar and drink poison. And Frodo says, no, no, no. Uh, there is no such thing as primary evil. The, the, evil, the evil one cannot create something new. All he can do is be derivative, or he's not using the philosophical language. You gotta read the book. But the point is, he, he, he can only twist something. And it turns out that the orcs, do you know what the orcs are? They're elves that have been captured and traumatized and twisted. And so, it is true that as we look at ourselves and we recognize our, our depravity, we see that we are infi infected throughout. We can't trust our minds, our wills, our bodies are all leading us astray, but they are still beautiful in their original essence. That was the problem for Aflacius, that we are not essentially evil. There is no such thing as essential evil. And in, in Augustine's theology, this is what's brought down through Tolkien, who was a Catholic, into this story. But there's these kids that are always just sitting there feeling like, I am this dirty, disgusting thing, and I'm hiding under the Jesus blanket of imputation. Now, I believe in this, the blood of Christ covering over us. But we need to help, I think, the young people realize that as they're kind of hiding out under that blanket, that they don't have to have dis disgust and contempt for themselves. That they're not precisely this, this horrible, ugly thing that, that they have to hide. No, the blanket of Christ means they can start to stand up a little bit. They're allowed to remember that they are not orcish. They, 
they act orcish, they look orcish, they, they, they smell orcish, but at, at another level, they can stand tall just a little bit and recognize their true elven identity. The blanket of Christ is not just a covering for our sin, it is also an embrace of the terrible tragedy and riddle of who we are, and yet the possibilities. Now, what, what, what is this recognition then of our orcness, but then also our ultimate elvishness? This is discernment with compassion, and discernment with compassion is repentance. Now, Romans 12.2, I think, helps us with this. This is the key text for me. Romans 12.2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I, I often heard this when I was young as, you know, don't think about naughty things. Like, ah, I'm trying to transform my mind. I'm thinking about ladies. <laughs> and I couldn't, you know, uh-uh. It has to do with something that's at the crux of the Protestant Reformation, and that is the translation of metanoiate, the Greek for uh, repent. And the Vulgate, the version that had been used, translated it uh, penitentiam dare, which means do penance. So when I say repent, I get, by the way, I get more trouble in my whole life saying repent than the F word, trust me. Uh, people misunderstand it because they, they think what I'm saying is penitentiam dare, even though they're they're uh, not Catholics. Not, it doesn't mean do penance. It means, uh, well, that's, that's what that means. So I'm, in the Catholic tradition of the late Middle Ages, I'm supposed to imagine that if I repent, then I can be forgiven. But Erasmus, uh, Lorenzo Valla, and then Luther all started to see that there was something fundamentally wrong with that translation, that the translation should be recipiscite, um, or wake up, or come to your senses. Come to your senses, orc. Oh, well, okay, I, I like that, right? Like, I'm an orc, I don't like being an orc. I've come to my senses about who my real savior is, what is my, uh, what is my ultimate identity. And recognizing this, this kind of repentance, I think is very important for church workers, but for all of us who want to be able to pass on this mission of God. And it's this uh, idea from the psychoanalyst Carl Gustav Jung. You may have heard of it. It's this idea of the shadow self, and we misunderstand it, I think. The shadow self is primarily this part of us that's always kind of right behind us, so we, we don't recognize it, but it's kind of killing us. It's put us into our own hell. And he had this really amazing uh, sermon that he gave, or in a sermon, he, he was giving a lecture to a conference of pastors in Switzerland. I'll read a piece of this for you now on the shadow self. Jung says, People forget that even doctors have moral scruples. When he says doctors, he means psycho psychologists, therapists. Uh, and that certain patients' confessions are hard for even a doctor to swallow. Yet the patient does not feel himself accepted unless the very worst of him is accepted too. No one can bring this about by mere words. It comes only through reflection and through the doctor's attitude toward himself and his own dark side. If the doctor wants to guide another, or even accompany him a step of the way, he must feel with that person's psyche. He never feels it when he passes judgment. Whether he puts his judgments into words or keeps them to himself makes not the slightest difference. To take the opposite position and to agree with the patient offhand is also of no use, but estranges him as much as condemnation. Feeling comes only through unprejudiced objectivity. 
This involves a deep respect for the facts, for the man who suffers from them, and for the riddle of such a man's life. It is a moral achievement on the part of the doctor who ought not to let himself be repelled by sickness and corruption. We cannot change anything unless we accept it. Condemnation does not liberate, it oppresses. And I am the oppressor of the person I condemn, not his friend and fellow sufferer. I do not mean to say that we must never pass judgment, and I think he would have been better off to use the word discernment, but uh, he says when, when we desire to help and improve. But if the doctor wishes to help a human being, he must be able to accept him as he is. And he can do this in reality only when he has already seen and accepted himself as he is. And so acceptance of oneself is the essence of the moral problem and the acid test of one's whole outlook on life. That I feed the beggar, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do unto the least of my brethren, that I do unto Christ. But what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, yea, even the very fiend himself, that these are within me, and that I myself stand in need of the arms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy that must be loved. What then? As a rule, the whole truth of Christianity is reversed. There is then no more talk of love and long-suffering. We say to the brother within us, Raka, and condemn and rage against ourselves. We hide him from the world. We deny ever having met this least among the lowly in ourselves. And, it had, and had it been God himself who drew near to us in this despicable form, we should have denied him a thousand times before a single cock had crowed. Oh, we are, we're so hard on others, we're so judgy, but it's because we're living in this world where we have a great deal of judgment and negative self-talk for ourselves. What Jung is saying is that in order for people to start healing, they need to be able to become open to the reality of who they are. And in Christian terms, this means that we need to be able to get naked before the great physician so that he can do his surgery on us. And I've often remarked with my wife that some of the most important things that have transformed our relationships and uh, the way we deal with our kids has been times when actually David Zoll has been speaking in a context where we knew we were all marinating in grace. And then he made us feel really bad about something like a Fitbit or something. You know, it wasn't, but didn't, it felt all right because he was like a doctor then. He was exposing something, and then we could laugh at it instead of uh, hide, right? So when you know that you're in the context of grace, that's when you can repent. It's in that context that you can face your shadow self and have compassion on it and also recognize it for the tragic but funny fool that it is, that you are. Now, this has all been very heady, so I feel bad about that. So I want to give you at least something as a gift you can take with you. You can write these in your notes. And this is my favorite party game. We have some party games like uh, Fortunately, Unfortunately, where I try to make the kids' characters all die miserably, and then they miraculously heal them. It's, there's all sorts of fun party games and, and driving games. This one you can do if you're on a first date, but you shouldn't. You should wait for like the fourth date because you're going to start crying. You're going to come to terms with all sorts of pain in your life uh, and laughter too. But what it is, is it's a game where 
you take these four questions and you, uh, you insert a, a celebrity so that you can have a shared conversation, just like uh, Carrie was doing with us. And it allows us to kind of, you know, it's not an Enneagram or your astrological sign or something, but you know, which Disney princess are you kind of game, it's great. Um, but you get to pick from all of them. And, and let me take you through these. The first is, what do you admire in a celebrity or others and you also see in yourself? And this is good because you want to start out positive and we're, we're upbeat and we're, we're being you know, positive. For me, uh, as I'm doing this, I, I thought of the dude from the, uh, you know, the Big Lebowski. Because I see sometimes that he's just kind of surfing the Dow, as I say, even though the world's coming down, he's drinking his white Russian. Now, if you want to get real fun with this, you don't just go over it too fast because, because what I learned then is that, is that you have, um, also for me, this sense that I have great anxiety a lot and that I'm not like the dude. So part of that is also worth looking at, but just have fun with that first one. Then the second one is, what do you admire in others but you do not see in yourself? This is where you see an area where you judge yourself deficient. Because this is what, for Jung, always is going on. When you're judging somebody negatively or when you're admiring somebody, both of these situations, both of these cases are indications of your shadow self. And why are we doing this? We're trying to identify the shadow self. For me, it's uh, Alex Honnold from Free Solo who's climbing El Capitan without ropes. Uh, I can't, I can't uh, imagine doing that. I'm terrified of heights, but I admire that. But what re it reminds me of a time after a, a, a Christ Old Fast conference in Florida. My wife and I were driving over the Tampa Bay Bridge. I should say, I was driving and she was sitting there holding the wheel as I was having a complete meltdown. Um, if you've ever been over, it just goes up, up, up. You start to like lose touch with where the ground is, and at least I did, and I thought for sure I was going to pass out and I was going to cause this catastrophe. And as I got to the end, I finally made it, and I was hyperventilating, and I was out there on the, on the pullout, and I was so ashamed. I, was, I just was so angry with myself. I had such disgust for myself. And so as you look at this, one of the things you can do is say, well, that's, that's my body. That's my body out of whack. My body is, 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 is acting in a way that's causing me to panic, and, and I can't really do anything about it. But I don't need to be ashamed of this. It's just the reality. Then number three. What do you disdain in others, but you do not see in yourself? Um, this is where sometimes you could have a real danger spot where you think that you're not that guy or gal, but you are. But, f but for some of us, sometimes we can identify somebody that we don't like and, and that's not us. For me, it's sweep a knee Johnny from uh, the Karate Kid. That was the blonde guy, the, the bully. Uh, I don't have that bully streak. I've only been in nine fights in my life. I lost all nine fights miserably. And they were always against a, um, a, a bully in school that I was trying to like, get in the way of him picking on somebody. And my parents were hippies, so they told me that, like we were, what Carrie was saying, the power of like, the secret and all this. Um, and Yoda, size matters not. No, it's not true. Weight class matters when you're in sixth grade, which I learned when I woke up in a pool of my own blood. But it was all right, just missing a tooth. But the point is, so sweep and eat Johnny, I don't like him, right? But what does this reveal? This reveals my deep insecurity about being Daniel-san, who has a crappy bike and not a motorcycle, who, who, who doesn't have status, does, doesn't have friends move into a new school. That was me, that little kid. And so I have to have compassion on Daniel-san, and by doing this, I can have compassion on me. But I can also 
have compassion on Johnny Sweepany Johnny. <clears throat> because as we come to find in a pretty good movie, the second one, right, that he himself was being uh, traumatized and abused. So we have compassion on ourselves, we have compassion on others. But the fourth one is, this is the one you gotta wait till you're good and ready. And this is, what do you disdain in others but you also see in yourself? <coughs> For this, oops, I think I can easily uh, illustrate this with uh, a familiar clip. Uh, and this is uh, from Tombstone. You must be Doc Holliday. <coughs> That's the rumor. You retired too? Not me. I'm in my prime. Yeah, you look it. You must be Ringo. Look, darling. Johnny Ringo. The deadliest pistol ever since Wild Bill, they say. What do you think, darling? Should I hate him? You don't even know him. No, that's true, but... I don't know, there's just something about him. Something around the house. I don't know. Reminds me of... me. No. I'm sure of it. I hate him. He's drunk. So this is, the, this is the real bit here, where we see a character and we have a, an instant reaction against them because we recognize ourselves in them. And for me, this was Justin Bieber. I'm not saying I'm a pop star like Justin Bieber. I'm just saying, the minute I saw that dude on YouTube, I hated him more than anybody I've ever hated in the world. And it wasn't three hours later before my brother said, check this guy out, he reminds me of you. <laughs> and this was back in the day, because I used to be, now I wasn't in pop, I was a heavy metal. I did like heavy metal, uh, Christian metal. So I had like Psalm 58, the righteous shall rejoice when they see the vengeance, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but I was still doing it in a stupid Justin Bieber way, you know? I wasn't doing the hearts, but whatever stupid heavy metal thing I was doing, I needed somebody, and this, and this is the key, so, so why do I hate him? I, don't, I shouldn't hate him, I just have self-loathing. Justin Bieber needed somebody to give him some maturity at a young age, but he didn't have it, I didn't have it. And so I'm embarrassed for him, I'm embarrassed for me, but we have compassion on this. And this is what the whole point of this exercise is, all these exercises, is, uh, is that we're all in this together. We're all in this together. And secular hell is about contempt. And so long as we cannot spread, uh, as long as we have contempt in our hearts, we cannot spread the kingdom of God. We cannot let it seep into us. As Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5, 40, 44. And uh, the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said, there is no greater disaster than contempt for the enemy. Contempt for the enemy, what a treasure is lost. The point is, friends, that you and I, the American Christian Church that's trademarked, Mr. Hankey, Louis C.K., we're all in secular hell together. But yet we who are followers of Jesus have a treasure to offer our fellow hellions, and that's salvation. Salvation, real salvation, which frees us, among other things, from self-imposed damnation. If we wanna reconnect people to Christ, these people without hope, Part of this involves then cultivating discernment and releasing our judgment. Cultivating compassion 
and releasing contempt. And in this way, friends, we are free to daily repent. For the good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's at hand. And it's good news because the secular logic in this kingdom is overturned. And we find that God was in Christ reconciling even the unforgivables to himself. You were forgiven before you even could say sorry. And so you can repent because repentance isn't a requirement for forgiveness. It is the gift made possible by the reality of forgiveness. You have nothing to lose then but your self-loathing. And what's more, everything has already been gained. So set aside your fear. Have compassion on others. Have compassion on yourselves. And breathe deeply in faith.